when a student enrolls, if they believe this content connects to their overall growth and development and what they live on a daily basis, they are much more likely to persist. Welcome to Reboot Higher Ed. On today's show, we have Dr. Matt Bergman, who is a program director and professor in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Louisville. Dr. Bergman's research is focused on adult learner persistence, prior learning assessment, leadership, and degree completion programs. His work has appeared in journals such as the Journal of Continuing Higher Education, Human Resource Development Review, Adult Learning, International Journal of Information Community communication technologies and human development, and his work has been highlighted in in international media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Chronicle of Higher Education, NPR, and Time Magazine. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Matt Bergman to the show today. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'd like to know a little bit more about the Organizational Leadership and Learning Program, if we could start there, if you're okay with that. And I'd love to know about you know, that student population that uh, this program is attracting, maybe just a little history about the program and uh, career, the career paths and uh, some of the pro- program successes. Okay, great. Uh, I'd love to share uh, a bit about the program, but um, talk a little bit about it, its context in the, the national stage as well. We have a range of uh, institutions that are really focusing in on adult degree completion. So this is one of many um, across the nation that is focused on those folks with some college no degree. Uh, specifically, we have interdisciplinary studies, general studies, general business, and our program is, is titled Organizational Leadership and Learning. So it's a Bachelor of Science in Organizational Leadership and Learning. And similar to many programs across the country, it focuses in on those folks that are working adults that are trying to push through with a lot of college credits, or at least some college credits, um, and no college degree. Uh, We at the University of Louisville really have a broad array of students. So our students range from roughly 23 or 24 years old to over 70. Uh, So we have a 74-year-old student. So you can imagine the diversity in the classroom, both online in the online environment, and then we have evening classes as well. So our students um, come from every sector, uh, ranging from military to government to nonprofit to corporate um, and in the education world as well. And these folks are immersed in a program that is a broad-based leadership degree that keys in on a lot of um, specific learning that occurs both in the classroom and field-based. So we do a lot of theory to practice within our curriculum. We want to key in on and, and really focus on the context that these individuals bring to the classroom and the academic setting and make sense of the new language and the new theoretical and conceptual frameworks that they are living on a daily basis within their work lives. So it's been very successful, and we've been around since 1975 in some form. It started as occupational training and development has evolved into workforce leadership and now titled organizational leadership and learning. So we have had many iterations that have focused on working adults, and now the you know accepted vernacular for what we are doing is organizational leadership. 
um, and it matches well with industry trends um, and the needs of many workforce um, the organizations that we work with. What do you think that um, the organizational leadership and learning program uh, does uh, exceptionally well versus maybe what an adult student, um, you know, working adult student would find at a university that's very much geared towards your um, traditional student? And the well, we are. I guess. We are a traditional institution, uh, very similar to a range of institutions in our region, Spalding University, Indian University Southeast, um, Indiana Wesleyan, several Sullivan. There are a lot of institutions that are traditional but serve adults within pockets of their uh, institution. And specifically, uh, we're kind of a boutique-style program where our students can take all evening, all online, or a mixture of the two. Um, so we focus on making sure that these people on that first shift or any other shift with a range of competing responsibilities can plug in at whatever time works best for them. So I always use the crude analogy that students can log on uh, to take an online class in their business suit at 3 p.m. or they can be crazy and log in in the birthday suit at 3 a.m. doesn't matter to me. It's a matter of getting the work done and making sure that they achieve the learning outcomes set forth by our curriculum. Yeah, that's, that's a, those are some great analogies. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think that, uh, it's, uh, access and the ability to, to go through the, the program and persist. Cause I think you probably have a lot of uh, students that maybe have, tried to go back to school maybe before, um, you know, I don't want to make assumptions. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, some of your students or the personas within that program? Is there any similarities sure, or anything that stands out, like some trends with those students? Yeah, they range uh, very broadly from early career to um, retired individuals. Um, so there's not exactly a, a, a real homogenous type population. Um, they're very diverse in, in so many ways from age to ethnicity to uh, work background and industry. Um, but our typical student, our average um, is around 39 to 42 years old. So we have a broad array of students, but we um, that mean range is, is, is roughly around 39 years old. So they're very um, immersed in life and they have a lot of experience to bring to the academic setting. And that is one of the really key components of our curriculum is really diving into what they have lived within the workforce so that we can connect that to the theory and the uh, conceptual frameworks within our program, um, within organizational leadership, workplace and information ethics, organizational needs assessment, project management, all of those things that they have lived and maybe didn't have the language for but they've done that on a daily basis. So students like, um, I'll just use uh, anonymous, um, but a person like Molly that is an administrator of doctors that has been um, running around for 30 years, scheduling, managing, and developing people uh, at a very high level, but has never finished their degree. That person comes in a little anxious about the idea of finishing a degree and then we introduce the curriculum and it lights a fire in, in a person like this that says, wow, I, I can't believe how much I know and how much uh, my learning within the experiential context 
makes a difference in the academic setting. So those nerves and that anxiety dissipate completely and they are kind of lit on fire to learn more and to understand. And what we find within our graduate graduates as well as our grad uh, corporate partners and, and other organizational partners is they absolutely love the curriculum because these people become more engaged, more um, excited about work, and more excited about translating some of the academic curriculum into real world practice. Yeah, and that's a, I know that's a something that's uh, a trending topic. I wouldn't say a trending topic, just a a big discussion <clears throat> point right now uh, in higher education is that you know the, are the if what you're learning in the classroom, uh, whether it's seated or online. Uh, 3 p.m. to 3 a.m. What? How does that transfer into uh, workforce readiness? And are we preparing our our graduates with with tools that they need to uh, succeed in the workplace? And I know uh, there are some out there that would say, "Oh, you know, college does not prepare you for that." But it looks like um, within the URL's program that that's something that has been top of mind as you've developed the curriculum. Um, I'm guessing even with outside entities and partners helping you develop that curriculum. Outside entities are a key component of what we do. And, and uh, we have no ego about um, trying to own this curriculum in a way that uh, puts us as the sage on the stage um, as our faculty. Um, yeah, I love that. That's talk great. about this. And it's really important that we connect with, these industry partners to understand the needs that they have within their talent. So we want to make sure that we think about like tomorrow's talent. How do we adapt our curriculum to make sure that it um, translates and um, connects so well with both the industry partners, but also the individuals that are immersed within uh, the curriculum. When these people are introduced to these concepts, they connect with what they do on a daily basis. They are much more likely to reach deeper learning outcomes um, well beyond what our traditional students um, see within their own trajectory um, from freshman to senior. Our adults have context to draw from, and when we introduce these concepts, they just have a deeper connection to the material and deeper learning outcomes um, that translate really well. Uh, Matt, uh, what would you say... Or should I say Dr. Bergman? Are you cool with either one? <laughs> so, please, yeah, please call me Matt. <laughs> all right, Matt. So if where if someone's, you know, we have a, a wild range of listeners, whether it's faculty, advice, people in enrollment management or advising within enrollment management, where if you if you are at a university that, you know, you see this curriculum that's developed, that's, you know, maybe it is attracting adult learners, maybe it's not, or, you know, there's a disconnect, where could someone start to because, you, you know, leaving the university to, to develop those partnerships, um, what, if you were developing like a toolkit that somebody could cut, you know, a virtual toolkit, what are some things that an individual on their campus right now could start beginning to do uh, to get some of that outside input and develop those partnerships? Well, certainly connecting with our uh, faculty at the University of Louisville, we've developed as part of these partnerships over, you know, 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. um, so, I think one of the main components that we don't do a great job in higher ed is connecting with our uh, local institutions, regional institutions, and national institutions. So I think if you 
if an institution was considering jumping into this game, why not go to the places that are um, enlisting the best practices? So whether that was a regional um, partner or somewhere across the United States that wouldn't necessarily be um, competition, go talk with those individuals. And what I have done over my career um, is learned a lot, obviously, from the people in our department and at the University of Louisville, but I've found so much uh, value in connecting with people outside that campus community um, at other institutions that are doing really innovative and really um, thoroughly vetted work where they have had fits and starts and they have had success and failure and they have basically done some of the work for us. So they do a lot of the legwork and then we can uh, adopt some of their best practices and we don't have to suffer some of the challenges. Similarly, we have institutions that contact us and talk with us consistently about our prior learning assessment practice, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Um, but we have done the same thing. So we have had a variety of, of great progress. We've had some struggles. And we're totally open and willing to share some of those best practices and make sure that institutions across the country that are starting this process don't have to go through some of the struggles that we have over the past 20 years. So I think um, really connecting as a higher ed community is a key element in a lot of what we're trying to do going forward because there are so many people out in the higher ed community doing excellent work and why not connect and do what they um, are doing, um, use the best practices and basically not reinvent the wheel. That's not, that's great. Uh, Matt, adult learners that are returning to, to college. Now, um, I will have, uh, uh, Dr. Bergman's, uh, a, a link to Matt's, uh, bio in the, the show notes, uh, cause there's, uh, there's a, a, a good array of, uh, awards and, uh, outstanding achievements that Dr. Bergman has been involved in with, uh, others as well. Uh, Matt, I know that you, you have a, you have a wide array of knowledge regarding adult learners. When you look at, uh, you know, just data today, is there any trends that stand out when you're looking at the adult learners? Uh, you know, and I'll, you know, just take that one step further is when, like, is there, a, you know, locally or nationally? Um, and then when they're seeking degree completion and they're coming back, um, is, you know, are you seeing anything that has to do with like persistence factors? I know there's a lot of students, adult learners that want to come back, um, working learners, but when they do, uh, we don't want them stopping out and trying to, to start all over again. So I'd like you to discuss anything that you recognize, and then uh, we can go into maybe some solutions that you've identified as well. Absolutely. And I'll talk about kind of a national perspective and then boil down and um, drill down into a kind of in the weeds at the University of Louisville perspective as well. So there are really impressive individuals across the country working together and Complete College America, as well as the Graduate Network, really focused on these persistence factors that are creating greater levels of academic achievement. And basically, we are trying every which way to connect as institutions, as state higher education um, executive offices, as um, government, uh, state government um, in initiatives, and really key in on some of those practices that are working um, in Hawaii, in Tennessee, in California, and try and adopt those practices at the local level 
um, in our region, not just the University of Louisville, um, but in the region, the Louisville metro area. So Graduate Network in Complete College America has a collective of administrators as well as partners and fellows that really make a true difference in spreading the word. Um, and I think that is the key element in all of this is spreading the word about things that are working. Now, the research that I have done has really focused on the factors that impact um, adults when they return um, and some of the solutions that we can put in place at institutions that really make a, a true difference. Um, and my team of researchers analyzed um, roughly 27 variables that have been showed within the uh, peer-reviewed literature to be significant impactors of persistence for working adults. Um, and among those include the kind of demographic or entry characteristics as kind of non-dynamic factors that include age, race, ethnicity, parents' level of educational attainment, um, number of credit hours, those types of things. Also, external environmental variables, things that we as campuses can't impact, but are part of what these individuals bring to the campus when they return, um, including work hours, um, the, the campus or, or, excuse me, the community influences like your um, church involvement, extracurriculars, um, your family influences, you know, the, the, the impact of family requirements and competing responsibilities there, and then also uh, last but not least, the inter internal campus uh, community variables, including the number of hours that students take, the faculty involvement, advi advisor involvement, um, creating an active learning environment, uh, prior learning assessment, and uh, admissions practices. So those things that we as institutions can get better at and streamline to make sure that their pathways are clear and um, without a lot of barriers. And what we found within that research is that adults obviously experience coming back to higher education much different than a traditional age student that's coming to live on campus. And they don't have as much connection, of course. Um, but they still need um, some form of community, some form of connection. And there is no doubt about that. But when students are motivated to achieve higher levels of education, they are obviously more significantly um, likely to, to persist. And then their perception of their ability to pay, to pay is so key in this. And it's important that you note that I said perception of ability to pay because a person that's 23 years old that is maybe still living at home but also working full time has a $35,000 income may believe they have plenty of money to go to school. Whereas a person with four children, you know, a $500,000 house, um, a job, um, dual income family but makes a family income of $140,000 may say there is absolutely no money that we can carve out of our budget to for me to go back to school. Um, and it's interesting that if you take income side by side, it would be obvious that that person would have um, with the bigger family and with uh, um, more means, more aptitude to get back into school, but it's just not the case because there are so many competing responsibilities. So we could obviously talk about that for days, but uh, it's yeah. You just really piqued my interest. There. Finances. That's a finances. different uh, approach. Like, we, I mean, that's that's uh, yeah. That's just kind of I, I've never really thought about it that way. That's some good. That's some great research because that's 
typically what we see, uh, you know, and I guess it makes me kind of just even think of conversations I've had with people that are, are very much like that. Like I can't afford to go back to school, but the majority of students that I, I have interacted with uh, couldn't afford to live the life that this individual is living. So that's uh so thank you for that. That's, that's some great stuff. Yeah. And it's important when we have those conversations with our returning adults is to break down some of those costs in the budget to see how we can carve out space to make higher education a logical choice um, and increase that perception of that person's ability to pay. Um, that is a key element in a lot of what we can do as uh, advising practitioners and, and faculty when we work with returning adults. Also tapping into the uh, educational tuition assistance programs. There are so many um, there are so many organizations that offer tuition assistance. It may not be full pay, but while that may slow down your path to graduation, it certainly will not impact your debt load if you really engage um, correctly and make sure that you utilize every penny of that tuition assistance program. Um, there are also more scholarships for adults that we're seeing pop up because we are becoming part of the mainstream in the conversation um, within higher education. Uh, but one note I wanted to um, also talk about to follow up on that, that research from our team at University of Louisville was the major finding of our study for working adults was this idea of relevant content and active learning environments. This was a significant predictor of students' ability to persist. And basically, to unpack that means when a student enrolls, if they believe this content connects to their overall growth and development and what they live on a daily basis, they are much more likely to persist. So what that means for us as academic practitioners um, and scholars is that we have to find a way to make this curriculum come to life and connect with these individuals uh, and tailor this to the people that come in our doors. So whether it's a broad array of industries that you're serving or if you are working in criminal justice, you have to understand how this is going to impact their lives daily. And if we can make that come to life as um, faculty and um, instructional designers, we are more likely to have these individuals persist to graduation because they have skin in the game and they see the direct benefit that it puts into their life. So working uh, in my work with adult learners and, you know, I'm seeing this on the enrollment end, you have, and I understand that persistent, that the persistence and connection. And, and those are some, should be some driving points for those front end admissions and advising conversations because you have a, you have a, a, a working adult, uh, maybe with some already some college credits, uh, you know, that they're trying to take for degree completion. And I believe a lot of times the conversations are centering around, you know, what's the quickest way to the, the four year rather than some of the points that you just brought up. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's what we see. And I'm sure that you see as well, Paul, in your work that when you sit down with a person, they're like, tell me how to get to the finish line as fast as possible. Don't add stuff. Don't make any fluff in there. I want it as fast as I can humanly possible get to graduation. But then when we meet them at graduation and they have that cabin gown on, they're kind of doing that happy dance. They're like, I love the learning. It was amazing. The content uh, 
you know, made my work better and made my home life better, uh, tell me about a master's degree. So from that initial conversation to graduation is a transform transformational process. And, and it really is truly inspiring. And I think the reason you and I and so many of um, the people might be listening to this podcast do this work because <laughs> you get so much happiness from helping an adult find a higher level of quality of life, a uh, higher level of fulfillment and engagement in, in their otherwise um, crazy competing responsibilities, um, wild um, changes. I mean, just crazy how life hits us. And if we start to become more um, in control and the authors of what we do, and I think education provides a venue to do that, um, there's so much more happiness and more joy in, in what we do within our work life. So, right. And you know, that when we're designing those pathways, uh, you know, we're, I always make this statement, you know, we're not enrolling prospective students We're we're enrolling future graduates and we have to look at that. So we're always looking at the end result, the desired outcome for this pathway. So it's not necessarily always going to be the program that we have at said university that's going to transfer in the most credits. Uh, we want you to get something out of it because we know the rigor that is waiting ahead uh, can make persistence an issue if you're not tied to it somehow. And I think what you uh, think what you are finding and the research that you're continuing to do um, is great and, and can be shared, you know, through the community and uh, locally and nationally because I think it's because um, without persistence and graduation, you're just submitting applications for adult working learners. Um, you know, and, and who knows, sometimes they can fly under the radar and you don't even know they're gone until you run into census or something like that at university. So um, some great points there. So Matt, I know you have some experience obviously with uh, credit for prior learning. And uh, I'd like to just pick your brain on, on, on that as well. So like, you know, is that something that that you all utilize uh, with the, with your program. Um, also like to know, uh, you know, some of the things that are going on out there that you see are developing uh, centered around uh, prior learning uh, assessment or PLA. Yeah. So for listeners that don't uh, or haven't heard of uh, PLA, prior learning assessment is basically evaluating and acknowledging college level and credit worthy learning that happens outside the confines of the college walls. So we do that through a rigorous process um, of portfolio evaluation where students can basically look through their trajectory, their evolution within their work life and pick out pieces and parts within industry certifications, military training, professional development, um, and all types of experiential learning and connect that back to either a course match or broad-based category credit at our institution. So that happens in a three-credit hour class at the University of Louisville, where we guide them, them through a uh, construction process of, and compilation of documents to create a portfolio. And then we evaluate that with a portfolio committee um, beyond just the faculty member to vet and to acknowledge and assess if that college level and credit-worthy learning um, did actually occur. So it's based upon competencies, it's based upon course match, it's based upon learning objectives, and we guide them through the process of helping, helping them understand how what they've done outside the, the walls of the college does connect with the major learning outcomes that we're trying to get at within our discipline. 
Now that happens across the United States. So what we have seen in the literature is that up to 50% of institutions are now offering some form of prior learning assessment credit, whether that takes shape in CLEP or DSST Dante's or um, portfolio-based credit or challenge exams. So there are a lot of ways to skin this cat, but basically if we are acknowledging 18-year-olds that have gone the honors route and done AP testing and get general education credit. Why wouldn't we connect with our executives, our high-level professionals, and connect with the learning outcomes they have, assess that, and give them potentially some elective credit towards their degree? So it's almost like the back end of the program, you're covering some of the elective credits um, because of the competency and the um, mastery that these people bring to the academic setting. So I think it's a no-brainer, but I also think there is a great level of stigma across um, the academy about prior learning assessment. I use the analogy of 15 years ago online learning. When you think about 15 years ago, and we're talking about online education, it was absolutely um, not very impressive and not well regarded. I think PLA in some ways is 15 years ago online learning. While it was happening um, back then in online education, there were some people doing outstanding work. The learning objectives were met. The high quality um, curriculum was there. The rigor was there, but not everybody was doing it very well. Very similarly, PLA, there are some outstanding performers, including uh, Thomas Edison, um, Empire State University, SUNY Empire State, University of Memphis. There are some schools doing great work alongside the University of Louisville. I hope we uh, hope and I think that we're doing outstanding work and um, relevant, rigorous and research based um, processes with that. Um, but I believe in 15 years we'll be talking about PLA very differently. We'll be talking it, about it very similar to we, the way we were talking about online education. Uh, we have Ivy League institutions now offering fully online degrees, so I think we're going to get there. Um, there's no doubt that disruptive um, technology and innovation is coming our way, and PLA, if you're not doing it as an institution, you need to start considering it. You know, with the innovation and the innovators that are out there, um, on, and online at one point was an innovation, I think that uh, many times what happens is uh, there are innovations sometimes that can be taken advantage of, um, and that news seems to travel faster than some of the solutions out there that are really uh, drivers of student success. Uh, would you agree to that? Absolutely. So obviously there are going to be bad actors um, and people taking um, advantage of innovation for innovation's sake without thoroughly vetting uh, the work behind it and making sure that it is rigorous and um, policy and practice. Uh, but I think there are so many institutions doing a good job now. And I think in a lot of ways, it's very open source as far as how we are doing this work. And I will say that the University of Louisville, University of Memphis, Thomas Edison, our practices are out there. Charter Oak up in um, Maine. I mean, they are doing wonderful, Vermont, excuse me, they're doing wonderful work and they're willing and happy to share that. I'm a part of a group um, called the Prior Learning Assessment Network. So if you are interested in joining uh, as an institution, feel free to uh, shoot me an email. Um, but we are looking for ways to standardize practice 
and make sure that standards are in place, that people are embodying those standards, and we can basically transfer these PLA credits backwards and forwards to institutions. So if someone is taking classes at Charter Oak up in Vermont, then when they go and finish their two-year degree, they could bring those credits to the University of Louisville. We haven't skinned that cat yet. We're not totally done, but we're working on it. And I think that we're going to get there because all of these institutions are really uh, very thoughtful in their, their work with this uh, PLA, and they have to be because if not, they will be. The, if you shine the light of day on some of this practice that's no good, um, well, then you're outed and your enrollment just uh, tanks. And we're not willing to um, suffer that consequence, so we're doing really high-quality work um, in developing these practices. So There are four well, reasons. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, um, so with PLAs, and I'm glad you uh, – kind of stated exactly what that means uh, during this this segment because I will tell you when when I first you know jumped in and started learning about them I had left the enrollment management world for a couple of years but when I ventured back in you know I went up to to Kale uh, conference in Chicago and it was my just uh, I guess reintroduction uh, you know being out in three you know two or three years and coming back you know and I and I learned all about these but I also learned about you know all the um, uh, I have to be be honest. When I was walking around the conference, I was like, "What? What is? What does this mean?" You know, I did. Everyone kept talking about PLAs, and you know, I just just, just nod my head like, "Oh yeah, of course, yes, of course." You know, and then I had to go Google it because uh, I really didn't know much about it. And um, I'm assuming that there's plenty that work in higher ed that still haven't you know learned a lot about, it, and a lot of things are hearsay. So there's a lot of myths out there. But one of the things that kept coming up too was just the uh, some of the hesitant, you know, if a university is hesitant or faculty are hesitant, uh, sometimes it has to do with, you know, I'm, we're already struggling getting students on campus and in the classroom. Um, this is going to take, you know, this is going to take butts out of seats and I don't want that. Uh, would you say that that's something you've heard? Or? Yeah, I would say definitely that it is a certainly a myth and a misnomer that it is going to detract from tuition revenue that it's going to impact faculty load. So in other words, are they going to even have those classes if we're giving PLA? Uh, and giving is, is absolutely the wrong word because we are basically acknowledging and vetting the learning um, to then honor um, that credit. So there are four reasons um, from my perspective that universities and colleges across the country should adopt PLA uh, within their standard practice and, and those include, number one, um, through CALE, the Council on Adult and Experiential Learning, that students that have access to PLA are more likely to graduate, so they graduate a higher percentage, and that they have a faster pace to graduation. So that's obviously something within iPads and uh, other metrics. We are going to um, benefit from state funding. We're going to benefit overall revenue, on and on. Number two, they are becoming more assimilated. These working adults have been removed from the academic setting. When you shove them back in and say, okay, write an APA paper, it is a foreign concept and it's very off-putting. Um, so why not just go back to the comfort of my home and watch Netflix and do my job? Mm -hmm. um, well, when we engage them in the PLA uh, practice and the portfolio process, they are engaged in writing about themselves and their career tra trajectory through a work autobiography. And in that process, they're developing APA um, writing standard papers 
um, that assimilate them into the academic setting, reassimilate them in a way that gets them prepared and ready to do very well in their additional curriculum that they move forward into their programs. Number three, students on average take 9.9 .9 more credits than those that don't have access to PLA. Now, this is the most counterintuitive data point that I've ever read out loud, and it's so confusing to so many people. So what does that mean? Well, if you get PLA, you're taking less credits, right? Well, yes, that's true. But in aggregate, when you think about persistent rates of adults, they are lower than the, that of traditional students. So we do not retain those people and continue to generate income through their tuition revenue. If we honor and acknowledge the prior learning assessment process and give them some credits towards electives, towards a major, towards a general education, they are more likely to persist. Therefore, they actually generate more tuition for the institution because we are persisting um, adults at a much higher rate than the standard uh, rate uh, nationwide. And last but not least, when faculty say, well, you're going to impact my discipline, you're taking away classes that I'm going to teach, this is not okay, I want to have a job. Um, PLA is not given as much for major classes. So in other words, it's not, not going to directly impact the discipline or the major in a very significant way. So there may be a class or two that they have competency in where they could do a portfolio where it could cover potentially a major class, but more than likely, they're not going to cover the major classes because we root individuals within whatever discipline. In our case, it's organizational leadership. So they cover these competencies within our program in these classes. And while they may have some context to draw upon, they may have some experience in leadership management or project management or so on and so forth, they are going to be introduced to new language that takes their learning to a much deeper level. So we actually root them in a discipline that then when they walk away, they have more expertise and that connects really well with the workplace. Um, and overall, it's a total win-win-win. So win for the university, win for the student, and win for the organization. That's uh, very informative. That's uh, some things to think about, definitely. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm le again learning more about uh, PLA. So Matt, um, before we wrap up, uh, I want to say thank you for your time today. I think you've brought in some uh, great knowledge uh, and research uh, that you and uh, some of your faculty have done at University of Louisville. So congratulations on uh, the path that you know you all have come to so far. And I know there's greater things down the road. Um, if anybody wants to connect with you, uh, what are some different uh, uh, ways that they could do that? So just like uh, all of our people on the web these days, you can con connect with me on social media, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is Matt Bergman1. Um, and then email bergmanmatt at hotmail.com or directly at my university email, matt.bergman at louisville.edu. And that's B-E-R-G-M-A-N. Uh, I love doing this work. I love working with adults. Uh, I've gravitated towards them over traditional age students because of the context that they bring um, and the deeper learning outcomes that I see them achieving. Um, the work with my colleagues, um, both at the University of Louisville and then uh, nationwide, has been so unbelievably rewarding. 
because we see that there are 36 million people with some college no degree. Um, and while it seems like low-hanging fruit, there's a lot of labor um, and a lot of love that goes into reconnecting these individuals and, and providing a clear and um, efficient pathway to uh, a better quality of life, a greater level of educational attainment. Uh, and I love the work and I'm excited to do it for many, many years to come. Well, thank you, Matt. And uh, thank you all for tuning in today to Reboot Higher Ed and have a great rest of your day. Love this episode of Reboot Higher Ed Podcast? Well, head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you.